I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad you're joining us online this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are working through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you want to follow along, Matthew 24 is where we're going to be today. Um, if you don't, don't worry. Um, we're actually just going to be covering two verses today. And uh, we're going to actually, if you know much about the gospel of Matthew, or if you're kind of a, a Bible nerd, you might know Matthew 24 is, um, it's, uh, it's special. Um, it's, it's what we would call apocalyptic literature. Um, we're going to get to it next week. Don't worry. Don't think that I'm just going to skip over. We're going to get to it next week. Jesus is going to have a lot of um, really intense things to say about what's going on in the world and what's going to come. We're going to get that next week. But this week, we're just going to look at the beginning of Matthew 24. So if you have a Bible, here we go. Let's take a look at it. It says this. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. We'll just pause there for a second. Now, now remember, um, we're only doing two verses, so we're halfway through the text we're going to read already, okay? Um, I, I read that, and maybe you read that, and maybe you think, what? what, what? Like, why, why are the disciples pointing out the building to Jesus as if he hadn't noticed the temple, right? Well, it tells us in other gospels that as they're leaving, the, the disciples were standing there and they're talking about, and they were in awe of the magnificence of this building. And, and, and the thing you have to know that's going to be really important today is the temple was a magnificent building. It was an absurdly magnificent building. And, and Jesus, as a good Jew, and the uh, apostles, the disciples, as good Jews, would have inevitably, over and over again, probably multiple times just in Jesus' ministry, made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And uh, historians tell us, they give us accounts of people who would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and it was nothing short of a of a holy experience. Not only were you going to the center, the world center of worship for the Jewish people, but as you're traveling there, they would say that um, as you're traveling there, they, they would have all of these lights in the cities and around the temples when festivals were coming. And uh, the, the first, first uh, century accounts would say that as you'd come to the temple, you could see the glow at night, sometimes for days before approaching Jerusalem, Right? Now, we live in a very different world. We have electricity and lights on all the time, so you get light pollution. But, you know, some nights, some nights you're out here or, or wherever you are, and um, you can see Salem, right? Have you seen kind of the glow of Salem over the hill? Some nights, if the lights are really low, um, you can see the pot farm, Right? just like glowing up into the sky. It just looks like aliens are just abducting people constantly right there, Right? And you can see, and, and they would say that it was so dark in the country of, in the country lands of Israel that you could see the glow of the temple. And then sometimes, depending upon where you came from, what angle you came from, sometimes even days before you got to Jerusalem, you could see the temple during the day. And, and one first-hand account said it this way. It said, the temple seemed to shine as brightly as the sun. It was this magnificent building, and, and, and for a Jew, it was what it meant to be a Jew. Everything about that building contained what it meant to be a Jew. The, the sacrificial system, 
was centered on that building, the, the, um, the presence of God, the God that they worshiped. Scripture says the God that we worship, God himself, dwelled in that temple in a unique way, different from all of the rest of the world. And they had this hope and this prophecy that one day all nations would come and they, they, would, they would all be drawn to this temple to worship and to celebrate God. Not only was it the center of their religious practices, it was the center of their politics. It was the center of their um, social order. Everything about what it was to be a Jew centered around that building, around this. And so when they look, they're not just saying like, oh, look how tall the walls are. But they stood in awe of this magnificent demonstration of God's faithfulness and his presence. Now, now listen to what Jesus has to say in response to their awe of this this thing that had stood there despite being destroyed um, and in rubble at a certain point had stood there really as a centerpiece of the Jewish faith for centuries. Listen to what Jesus says. Look at this, verse two. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And it made me think, what do you do when it seems like God's failed you? What do you do in those moments in your life when it seems like God has disappointed you? You see, um, when we read scripture, we have, we have a tendency, we have a temptation to not feel the full weight of scripture, to not feel the angst and to feel the pain. We read stories and, and we know the end of the stories, right? So even um, Zach Calligan, a friend of mine, we were talking this morning and, and even, even like the cross, like we have a hard time feeling the despair of the disciples when Jesus breathes his last on the cross because we know Hey, on the third day, he's going to raise. Easter's coming. Don't you know Easter's coming? Don't you know he's going to be resurrected? Don't you know he's going to come out and, and, and he's going to eventually ascend into heaven? Don't you know he's going to conquer death? Don't you know? And, and we, we don't feel the, the weight or, or sometimes there are cultural issues or social issues that just are so far disconnected from the world that we live in that we don't feel it, but... but I want you to try just for a moment, just to try and fathom, to feel. This is everything of what it meant to be the Jewish people is contained in this building. The, the promise of God's unfailing presence to them was this building, that as long as this building was there, that God's presence dwelled in that space, that they were the people of the temple. And it wasn't just the temple. I mean, this has been, this has been the centerpiece of who they are as a people since the beginning. You remember the story, right? They're out in um, Egypt. They're enslaved in Egypt, and, and uh, God draws them out. He takes them out through the Red Sea, and he leads them out into the wilderness. You know one of the first things he does? He tells them to build a tent, a big tent, 
I mean, it's, it's not like a Bimart or Walmart tent, you know, kind of rickety flaps in the wind. It's like, it's a mobile building, right? He tells them to build this, this tent, and at the middle of the tent, they call it the tabernacle. At the middle of that tent, he says, my presence is going to be with you in that space uniquely, always, and as long as my presence is there, I will be with you and I will be amongst you. And this is what will define you. This is what defined the Jewish people, that they were the people of Yahweh who tabernacled amongst his people. And then there comes a time, they end up in the promised land and, and, and they have the tabernacle for a while and God gives them permission to build a permanent facility we call the temple. And God's presence in some way that just our, our brains just don't really have ability to comprehend what God's even talking about. God's presence in some unique and special way goes from the center of the tabernacle to the center of the temple. But still, they are the people of Yahweh. They are the people whose God's presence dwells amongst them. John picks up on this. All right, John writes in his gospel, he, he says that um, Jesus, that he came and dwelt among us. That's the way we translate it. But the language is the same. In fact, it could be translated um, that, that he tabernacled same language, that Jesus himself, that what he's doing is he's coming to dwell amongst us, and everything of what it meant to be the people of God and to be assured in the presence of God was held in this building, and Jesus says almost flippantly, he says, it's all going to get destroyed. Can, can, you, can you just, I mean, just even try and fathom the agony that they would have felt that day as they watched. Historians tell us that um, that day that the temple was destroyed, it was destroyed with such violence. Now, this may be some exaggeration, but it'll give you a picture. It was destroyed with such violence that they said that even the stones caught on fire. Such destruction and violence, and all of what it meant to be the people of God, all of their society, their identity, all wrapped in this place. And Jesus says, it's going to go away. So what do you do if you're one of these disciples, if you're a Jew? What do you do in that moment? What do you do when it feels like God's failed you, when it feels like God's disappointed you? Here's what I think you do. You weep. You lament, you mourn. Somewhere, somewhere along the way, I, I'm not a good enough church historian of theology to, to know, but somewhere along the way, we got this really weird idea. We got this really weird idea that like God would be offended in our tears. That, that, that God would see it as like some great offense against his sovereignty and his goodness if we wept and mourned and lamented and grieved. That we'd somehow be saying like, God, we don't trust you. We don't think you're good. We don't think you're kind. We don't think you're loving. And that we'd somehow have to just be people who don't cry. But he, here's, here's the thing, here's the thing. Um, do you, you know what the Old Testament actually tells? God actually, get this, God commands his people to mourn. Just, just for a second, just for a second, just think about this. God doesn't invite his people to mourn. He commands them to. Now here, um, if, you, if you lost someone, you know, your boss might come into you, and this is what your boss might say to you. He might say, um, or, or she might say, hey, um, 
if you need a few days. Right? God doesn't say that to his people. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, hey, um, you know, uh, when you're having a hard time, well, like when things go south, if you need a couple days, like just, just take a couple days. He doesn't say that. He demands his people. Now, now listen, listen to what he prevents them from doing. He tells them they can't do, okay? He tells them they can't work. He says, you cease working. You must. And, 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 and in these moments of lament, when God specifically, you know, um, in this example, God's, God's talking about when you lose someone you love, like when someone dies, he demands they stop working for seven days. He, here's another crazy one. You know what he tells them? He says, you can't study the Torah. For seven days, God prohibits. Just think, think about this. Think how crazy. God so seriously takes mourning, lamenting that he prohibits his people from studying his word. If it was someone really close to you, it would be for 30 days, for a month, you could not study the word. For 30 days, you couldn't sing. You couldn't go to synagogue and and sing songs and try and fake it and just sing your way out of the pain. You couldn't shower. You couldn't clean. You couldn't engage in marital relations. All these things God prohibited. He said, you just, you can't do it. You are required. You are commanded that you must lament. You must weep. In fact, um, there's a prophet his name's Jeremiah. You ever heard of the prophet Jeremiah? Uh, he's got a nickname. You know what his nickname is? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. The weeping prophet. <laughs> Wouldn't you want that job? All the days of your life. God inspired a book in the Old Testament to be written called Lamentations. The laments. The weeping. The mourning. There was this um, rabbi, and, and he had this teaching and this, this idea um, that he would share. And I thought it was really beautiful. Just uh, kind of permission, giving a reminder. He said this. He said, um, when you mourn, he said, uh, for three days, it is, is, it is as if there was a sword that rests on your shoulder that at any moment could cut deep into your soul. He says, for up to seven days, the sword remains in the corner of your room at any moment ready to cut deep into your soul. He says this, for for a month, the sword of mourning will pass you unexpectedly on the street. And for years, for years, the most unexpected moments, the sword of mourning will come to you in the presence of a family member. It was just this reminder. Like God demands that we be a people that mourn and lament. Not just the Old Testament. Not just the Old Testament. You remember um, Paul writes, he, he says this. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. And, and then you remember the second half? What's he say? And weep, weep, weep with those who weep. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, um, you know, um, those who are weeping, j- just read them some Bible verses. 
You know, those those who are weeping, remind them, the joy of the Lord is my strength. You know, those who are weeping, come up beside him and say say this. Hey, you remember, um, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He says, weep, mourn, lament that your holy act of service in love is to simply sit and weep. It's not just us. Um, Jesus weeps. Right? I mean, you guys know the shortest verse in the Bible. It's not actually the shortest verse in Greek, but the shortest verse in English, but nobody cares, okay? It's the story of Lazarus. The whole story is nuts. Have you read this story? Like the whole story, just everything about this story, every time I read the story, my brain just goes, Pfft. like I just, I don't know how to process all the things that happen in the story, right? Um, so, so like here, here's one little factoid. Maybe you've heard me say this before, one little factoid. Um, theologians say there is a specific reason that Jesus says when he, when he goes through, so if you don't know the story, Lazarus dies, or actually it's better than that. Lazarus gets sick. And people come to him and say, hey, Lazarus is sick. If you come now, you can heal him. And then it says, Jesus, hearing this, waited. He stayed. Like, he let him die. And then he goes, and, and he goes there, and, and everyone's weeping and, and crying. And, and um, in this really profound, beautiful moment, Jesus weeps with them as well. But, but the one little factoid that I love about this is, um, when he goes to raise him from the dead, this is what he says. He says, Lazarus. Come out! Theologians have pointed out that the power of Jesus is so sufficient, so amazing, that he had to say those three words, Lazarus, come out. Because if he just said, come out, every dead body would have come out of the hill. Isn't that awesome to think about? Like, that's the kind of God that we worship. He had to tell all the rest of them, no, you guys stay there, right? Can you imagine, like, if he just had a slip up, like, just had a little brain fart, and he's like, come out, all these beans start coming out. It's like, no, 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 go back, go back, go back, go back. All the other ones are like, man, I thought this was my chance, right? Lazarus, come out. Jesus knows that in a moment, he's going to speak those words, and Lazarus is going to come out, and he's going to hug and embrace his family members, And yet, when he comes to that space, you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't come to him and go, hey, uh, (laughs) where's your faith? Don't you know? Don't you know? Like, I'm the Messiah. Like, I'm I'm the one who's going to fix everything. I'm the one who's going to make everything right. Don't you know? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I can do? Haven't you read the book of Revelation that I'm going to wipe away every tear? Don't you know? He just weeps. He just weeps. It's not, it's not just Jesus. Um, scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit mourns with us. It's a passage that says that when we don't have words to pray, the Spirit groans on our behalf. Man, it's so beautiful. It says... Um, it groans. He, here's here's um, the, the Greek word there, the Greek phrase is actually um, an aching in your bowels. Right? Have you felt that? 
Like it says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that when you're weeping and in agony, and when you're in such agony that you don't even have words to be angry about what's going on, and you just weep, and, and everything feels tied up in here. You know what it says? The Spirit comes beside you, and it mourns with you. Here's something I thought was incredibly beautiful. I, I honestly, I hadn't even noticed till this morning. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say the Spirit that when you don't have words to pray, the Spirit prays for you. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that, that when you don't have words to pray, that the Spirit goes before you and prays great prayers of faith on your behalf. When you don't have words to pray, the Spirit just aches with you. He doesn't even utter a word. He just groans. What do we do? What do we do when it feels like God's disappointed us? When it feels like God's failed us? We weep. We mourn. We lament. There's a verse in the Psalms, maybe you've heard it before. It says this. It says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. There, there is... There is something uniquely different about the presence of God experienced in the morning. There is something, if you've done this with someone else, if you've been there with someone else, there is something immensely intimate about weeping with someone else, about simply mourning. And Scripture tells us that in those moments that the Spirit comes and weeps with us, that there's a a presence of God that can only be experienced in our honest weeping. Earlier in Matthew, this is a verse that we read, and um, it's, it's kind of a trippy verse. It says this. It's a kind of a verse we don't really like to sit on. It says this. It says, um, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who lament. Why? Because, because in that space, in that space, we have an opportunity to experience the presence of God in a way that can be experienced in no other way. The verse actually doesn't end there. It says, it says um, blessed are those who mourn. And then, and then you remember the second half? It says this, for they shall be comforted. You ever thought about this? Think about this. Um, who's doing the comforting? When Jesus makes this promise, Blessed, honored, joyful, happy are those who mourn, for those shall be comforted. It's because the presence of God comes to you as a good father to embrace you in a way that you can experience in nothing else in this life apart from the tears of lament and mourning. What do we do? What do we do when it feels like God's disappointed us, when, when everything that we held as important crumbles in front of us? Dreams, relationships, futures, opportunity, marriages, um, our health, when all these things crumble, we mourn, we lament. Our, our, our world, our world, our, our nation, our, our community is is broken, and there's much to lament over. 
There is a lot of things, especially in this last couple years, we've become maybe more than any other time in this generation. We become aware of our brokenness, of our inadequacy, and we've experienced pain and agony in, in dreams that fell apart, in relationships that fell apart, in just, in just pain. And one of the great gifts that we can give as the church is to be a people who are not afraid of tears, who lament and mourn well. Um, There's a comedian named Brian Regan. He tells this joke. And um, it's a joke, but, you know, as with, like, the best jokes, it really has this, like, really deep truth laying inside of it. And um, he, he tells this joke. Maybe you've heard it. He says uh, he was at a park, and he, and he saw some parents with their kid, three- or four-year-old kid, and um, the kid's got a balloon, right? And uh, the kid goes, is walking, and, and he does what happens every three- or four-year-old that has a balloon and goes outside. The end is always the same, okay? Unless you tie that sucker to them, this is what happens. Ah! Mama! No! Ah! Right? It just ascends off into the heavens every single time. It's guaranteed. Three or four-year-old, they're going to let it go, and it's going to go away. Right? He said he was standing there watching it, and one of the parents turned to the kid, and he goes, it's just a balloon. We'll get you another one. <laughs> he said, in his joke, he says this. He says, um, what if that was your wallet? Or your cell phone? No! <laughs> Come on, Sean, we'll get you another one, right? You know, we have an opportunity as the church to mourn and lament well. Healing is not going to come to our nation, to our lives, to our community, to our church until we learn to be people who can weep well who can stand beside other people and not just say, hey, it's just a balloon. We'll get you another one. You know what? When Jesus comes back, he's going to make everything right, and you're going to get 10,000 balloons. Why are you worried about one balloon? You know, God works all things together. You know, maybe there was a kid, a poor kid, up on top of that building over there, and he needed a balloon, and God knew it. So he let you let go of that balloon so that it could float over there so that little kid could get a balloon. You don't know what God's doing in making, the, in making this a better world and bringing joy to people. But instead, when we can just sit and weep and mourn, in those moments, in those places, the presence of God dwells in a holy and beautiful way different than any other place or experience in our life. In those moments, not until those moments, does the healing, redemption, and restoration of our good God begin in our tears, in your tears this morning, in your tears this day, in your mourning and lamenting, know that God is not offended. He's not disappointed. He's not shocked. But when we cry out and weep, those are the moments he draws near. So I pray, may we be a people, may we be a church that laments 
well, that weeps often, so that we also might be a people that will begin slowly to bring healing and hope to a broken world.